It's good to welcome you this morning as we've uh, gathered together to to worship, and uh, good to see everyone gathered together this uh, first day of August. And uh, our call to worship this morning will come from the book of Psalms, Psalm 3. Psalm chapter 3, later in our service, we'll be looking at Acts chapter 9, the salvation of Saul, the the persecutor of the church, the one who was determined to uh, do everything that he could to destroy anyone and everyone who was following Jesus. And we see God's sovereignty and salvation, and David speaks of that in Psalm 3 as well. Psalm chapter 3, the word of the Lord says, Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me. My glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice and he heard me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke. For the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. Selah. Let's pray together. Lord God, we are so thankful this morning that we can gather together to offer you our worship. Lord, we give you praise this morning because you are sovereign, because salvation belongs to you. Lord, we give you praise because you are a shield. You are our glory. You are the one who lifts up our head. You watch over us through the night. You awake us to a new day. You sustain us. And so, Lord, we give you praise because you are our creator, you are our sustainer, you are our redeemer, you are our Lord and the source of our help and our hope. And Lord, we thank you that we can gather together this morning and give you thanks and praise for these attributes that bring us safety and comfort. And Lord, we confess so often we are distracted and and look at our circumstances and look at those around us, Lord, and we're tempted to despair. We're tempted to be paralyzed by fear. We're tempted to lose hope. And so, Lord, we ask your forgiveness and help us. We ask your help. Your Spirit would help us to lift up our eyes above our circumstances and look at you and look at your throne and have our hope and our faith renewed and restored. Lord, lift up our heads and help us to see your glory. Help us to see all that you are for us in Christ Jesus, Lord, and help us to celebrate the victory that we have in Christ. And Lord, we pray this morning as we worship that your Spirit would again aid us. Help us to see your glory, Lord, and to offer you the praise that you are due that you are worthy of our worship, 
You are worthy to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. And we pray that your spirit would grant us that grace to offer you worship that would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Right, I'm going to invite you to take out your hymnals this morning and turn to hymn number 20. Continue to worship this morning. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 9, the ninth chapter of the book of Acts. Last week we looked at the initial encounter between the risen Lord and Saul, the seeking Savior, and the one that he was his chosen vessel to uh, take his name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Jesus graciously appeared to Saul, exalting himself and humbling and breaking Saul. And today we look at the aftermath of that as uh, Ananias is sent to Saul uh, to lay hands on him that he might receive his sight. And so I'm going to begin reading at the beginning of the chapter, chapter 9, verse 1, to set the verses in their context. And our text will begin, our focus will begin today in verse 10 through the 19th verse. So Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, I believe Luke is writing these words, and he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he's writing in such a way that he's writing the very word of God, very words breathed out by God himself. And so the word of the Lord says in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light showed around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise, go to the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Verse 10, the beginning of our text today. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. He said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise, go to a street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. And Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard many things about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, 
who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when, when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Interesting. He set out to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And at the end of the text, Saul spent some days fellowshipping, eating and drinking with the disciples in Damascus. What a sovereign Lord we serve. Let's pray together. Lord God, we give you praise. And Lord, we thank you that you have spoken to us, Lord. And we thank you for this text. And Lord, we thank you for just the awareness of your great sovereignty and your great power. And Lord, we're thankful for the salvation and the ministry of Saul. A ministry of which we have all benefited more than we can say. As we have read the words that he wrote as he was inspired by you to write 13 books of our New Testament. And Lord, we stand in awe of your amazing grace to save Saul, the Pharisee of Pharisees, the chief of sinners, and to use him as a chosen vessel to minister not just to Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, but even unto us through the words you inspired him to write. So Lord, we stand in awe today of your amazing grace. And Lord, we pray that your Spirit would teach us truths that we can apply from this text. And Lord, we pray that we would rest and trust in your sovereign grace. In salvation, in sanctification, and in service. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, I wonder if you have ever looked at someone and said, you know, I believe it would be impossible for that person to be saved. I wonder if you've ever looked at someone and, and think that, that that person is just too far gone and can't be saved. And maybe it was somebody who was very religious. Maybe you knew someone who was exceedingly religious, doing all of the things and, and, and rigidly trying to obey the law and, 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 and studying the law and understanding the law and doing everything he could to, to serve and to be obedient to the law of God. Someone you would look at and say is incredibly a moral person, a good person, a person that's very religious, that is busy doing what he believes to be serving God. Maybe he's teaching Sunday school, taking up the offering, the chairman of the deacon, someone who is exceedingly religious. And yet in your perception you see that that person is not serving in the power of the Holy Spirit, but that, that person is serving in the power of the flesh. And you might look and say that person is, 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 is morally upright, that person appears to be good, that person appears to be serving God and has the esteem of the people, that person is admired and respected by the religious people and giving positions of authority and positions of, of service. 
And that person is, seems to be doing, doing so good that that person will never, ever come to see his need for the Savior. He's very religious. He's very successful in that and putting on a front and deceiving the people and getting places of service in the church. And you might look at that person and say, that person can never be saved because that person will never see his need for a Savior. That person will never be convicted of his sin and his helplessness and his hopelessness because he's doing such a good job of being religious in his own flesh. Or maybe there's the other extreme. Maybe you see somebody who uh, is so bad, <laughs> so evil, so wicked, someone who breaks all the Ten Commandments and does so with glee and, and does so just with abandonment and seems to be enjoying the, the violation of the Ten Commandments. Someone who you say is wicked, is evil, and, and, and has no, no moral compass at all. Someone who has completely seared their conscience and sins with reckless abandon and even, even glee. And happiness. Maybe you've been tempted to look at that person and say, that person is too far gone. That person is too wicked. That person is too evil. That person can never be saved. And so maybe we've been tempted to look at someone who's so good that they can't be saved because they'll never see their need for a Savior. Or someone who is so wicked or so evil that they will never come to the point where they recognize that what they are doing is condemning them to hell. They will never experience brokenness. And when we look at this text, I think we evidently we actually see the same guy in both of these categories. Saul was a religious man. Saul was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. Saul was, uh, had studied the law, studied at the most respected seminary under the most respected rabbi. And he was zealous in doing what he believed to be service of the Lord. He was zealous in observing the law. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was blameless according to the law. He was very religious. And people looked at him and esteemed him and followed his lead, and followed his example, and gave him letters of authorization to do what he believed was in service to God. A good man. Everybody would look at Saul and say, that man is religious of the religion. Obeying the law, morally upright, he is exceedingly good. A good man. A religious man. A moral man. But at the same time, Saul would refer to himself as the chief of sinners. A wicked man. An evil man. A man who was doing everything within his power to destroy the church. Every breath he breathed out was a threatening and murderous breath against those who were following Jesus. And he was going in house to house and dragging followers of Jesus out, arresting them, taking them to the chief priests where they would be put on trial for their life and most likely executed as Stephen was. 
And he wasn't content just to run them out of Jerusalem. He chased them to other countries. He went as far as 150 miles to chase down believers of Jesus and to go and grab men and women, bind them, arrest them, and take them on that 150-mile journey in chains back to Jerusalem to be put on trial and probably be executed. We would say that Saul was an evil and wicked man trying to destroy the church. We might look at Saul and we might say, there is no way this man can be saved. He believes that he is serving God and he is recognized and has esteem and prestige for serving God. And yet what he is doing is incredibly evil and wicked. He knows about Jesus and he has flatly rejected Him and he is doing everything he can to make sure that the name of Jesus is never mentioned anywhere near Him again. And we look at this text that actually takes God longer to convince Ananias that Saul can be saved than it takes for the Lord to save Saul. Ananias looks at Saul and says, there's no way. No way this man can be saved. And yet, what do we see in this text? We see the sovereignty of God in salvation. God is so sovereign in salvation, He is so powerful that He can save the most unlikely prospect. And so let's look and look at some observations in this text and let's see how we see the sovereignty of God in salvation. The first, the first way we see the sovereignty of God in salvation, we, we addressed it a little bit just briefly last week, but the fact that Saul was not seeking Jesus. Saul was not seeking after Jesus. He believed that he knew everything there was to know about Jesus, and he had rejected it. And not only had he rejected it, he had determined that it was very dangerous and it must be eradicated, it must be eliminated. He was not seeking Jesus. He did not go to a religious service. He did not go to a revival meeting. He did not go to a crusade. He did not go to a religious bookstore and buy a book to find out more. He did not uh, ask his Christian neighbor to tell him more about Jesus. He did nothing. He was not seeking after Jesus, he was seeking to destroy him. He, he believed he knew everything there was to know and Jesus must be destroyed. He was not seeking after Jesus. He was not a seeker. But the Lord was seeking after Saul. In fact, Saul was the Lord's chosen vessel. The Lord sought after Saul. The Lord appeared to Saul. The Lord called out to Saul. The Lord was the seeker. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost, and Saul was incredibly lost. Even though he was religious, even though he was moral, even though he obeyed the law, he was lost, and he was hopelessly evil and wicked. And he was not seeking the Lord. He did not want to know more about Jesus. He did not want to do anything to do with the church other than to destroy it. But God is sovereign in salvation and the Lord chased after Saul. The Lord was seeking Saul and the Lord confronted Saul. The Lord exalted himself to Saul and left Saul humbled and broken. And so the first way we see God is sovereign in salvation is, is He is the seeker. He went and grabbed hold of one who was not seeking after Him. And so we see that Lord is sovereign in salvation because Saul was not seeking Jesus, but Jesus was seeking after Saul. 
And second, the second way we see that God is sovereign in salvation is that God was simultaneously preparing the heart of the messenger and the heart of the prospect. God is simultaneously preparing the heart of the one who will speak to Saul as He is preparing the heart of Saul to receive the message. Now, God is sovereign in salvation, and He doesn't have to use human instruments, but He chooses to use human instruments for His glory and for the joy of His people, and God is working to prepare the heart of Ananias. Verse 10, Now there was a certain disciple uh, at Damascus named Ananias. Nothing special about him. Just an ordinary guy, a certain disciple. He's not an apostle. He's not an elder in the church, any indication. He's, not, he's just a certain disciple. And he's also unfortunately named. I imagine that every time Ananias introduced himself, he had to say, not that Ananias. <laughs> I'm not the Ananias in chapter 5 that dropped dead in the front of the church. I'm not that Ananias, obviously, because I'm still here. But he, he had this name that was a common name, a common man, a common disciple, just a guy that's in the church in Damascus. In fact, being in the church in Damascus, what he, he was actually on Paul's hit list, Saul's hit list. Saul had gone to the high priest and gotten letters of authorization that if he finds anybody in Damascus that is following the Lord Jesus, I can arrest him, put him in chains, bring him 150 miles to Jerusalem, put him on trial where he will probably be executed just like Stephen was. Ananias was an ordinary guy, but he was a guy that was on Saul's hit list. He was included in the letters of authorization that Saul had to arrest and bind. And Ananias is there in Damascus, and the Lord prepares his heart for the active service that he needs. The Lord calls to Ananias in a vision, and Ananias responds, Here am I, Lord. And, and you know, when I read this, I'm a little bit jealous. And the Lord told Ananias, What street to go to? Which door to knock onto, and what, who to ask for, and what to say. And I read this, and I'm jealous. I wish the Lord would tell me what street to go to, what door to knock on, who to ask for, and what to say. But um, the Lord, while He could do that for me, uh, usually chooses not to. As we read these words, remember we're in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts primarily is descriptive, describing what happens, not prescriptive, prescribing what is normal forever and ever. I think we say this in every chapter in the book of Acts, that these are all first, first things that are happening, and once something happens the first time, it can never happen the first time again, because the next time it happens, it will be the second time, <laughs> and the second time is always different than the first time. And so, so here, Ananias is told specifically by God, what street to go to, which house to knock on, who to ask for, and what to say. But now, God has given us His Word. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. In fact, Saul, who's going to write half the New Testament, hasn't even been converted. Just, just, has just been converted, and, uh, 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 but is still blind and hadn't written the New Testament yet, or his half of it. So he didn't have the New Testament. And so normally, when God chooses to use a messenger a human instrument in the salvation of another, we are governed by the general principles that are laid out to us in the New Testament. We have principles. We don't necessarily get 
a voice telling us what street to go to, what door to knock on, who to ask for, and what to say. But we have the New Testament, and we're governed by those general principles. And the Lord expects us, with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, to apply those principles to our service, to our evangelism, to our messaging. I wish the Lord would give that kind of details, but He is pleased most often for us to be guided by the Holy Spirit using the Word of God now. But this is unique. Saul is a unique individual. Saul is the, uh, uh, the apostle that was born out of due time. And Paul would be God's chosen vessel to take his name to the Gentiles, to kings, and to the children of Israel. This is unique. But what is not unique is that God is preparing the heart of the messenger. He is working in the heart of the messenger. But not only is he working in the heart of the messenger... He is working in the heart of the receiver of the message, the prospect, the convert. Because he says to Ananias, here's where you are to go, here's what door you're to knock on, who's here you're to ask for, and he is praying. That's a pretty big change from the beginning of uh, chapter 9. In the beginning of chapter 9, Saul is confident. Saul's got a plan. He knows where he's going. He's got authorization to do it. Uh, in chapter 9, he's not praying. He's doing He's acting. He is on his way to Damascus and got letters of authorization in his hand to do what he wants to do to carry out his plan. He is confident. He is self-assured. He is active. But after he met the risen Lord, saw the risen Lord on the, on the road, and the Lord convicted him of his sin, of persecuting him, now Saul has recognized his dependence. He has been humbled. He has been broken by the glorified Lord. And he recognizes his need and he is praying. He is crying out to God to give him what he does not have. He recognizes his dependence. He is no longer self-confident but dependent. He is praying. And God has prepared his heart. God showed him in a vision that a man named Ananias is going to come. And a man named Ananias is going to put his hands on you. A man named Ananias is going to come and put his hands on you, and you will receive your sight. God is working simultaneously in the heart of Ananias and in the heart of Saul. God is sovereign in salvation, and He prepares the hearts of His messengers, and He also goes before His messengers and prepares the hearts of those who will hear. God is sovereign in salvation, and Ananias is called to be faithful, but God is preparing the heart of Saul so that the witness will be fruitful, so that it will be productive. And so we see the sovereignty of God in salvation. Saul was not seeking after, after Jesus, but Jesus sought after Saul and arrested Saul and broke him and humbled him. And now he's working in the heart of Ananias and in the heart of Saul, making preparation for the message. And then third, we see that God is sovereign in salvation and He can save the most unlikely of prospects. God is sovereign in salvation and He can save those that we would look at and say, there is no way that this man can be saw, saved. And we see that with Ananias. It, uh, God spends more time convincing Ananias that Saul can be saved than He spends in saving Saul. Ananias answered, verse 13, Lord... I've heard about this guy. I've heard about this guy from a lot of people. 
I've heard that he's done a lot of harm to your saints in Jerusalem and that he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. I've heard about this guy. I've heard of the danger that he's done. I've heard how evil he is, how wicked he is, how cruel he is, how efficient he is in grabbing hold of men and women in the church, putting them in chains and dragging them to Jerusalem and putting them into jail and putting them on trial. I've heard about this guy. I'm on his list. You are giving me a dangerous mission. Ananias sees the mission that he's been given as a suicide mission, and he just wants to make sure that the Lord understands that. Imagine Ananias trying to give information to the all-seeing, all-knowing, infinite, exalted Lord Jesus. But he's afraid. This mission doesn't make any sense to him. He doesn't believe that Saul can be converted. He believes that Saul is evil, hopelessly wicked, and dangerous to him. And and Ananias just wants to make sure before he does this that he's heard right, that Ananias' ministry in the local church is about to be over, as well as his maybe his life is going to be over if he goes to the street named Straight, knocks on the door of Judas' house, and asks for Saul of Tarsus, Ananias just wants to confirm the message because he doesn't see any way that Saul can be saved. And and so there's the issue here we've talked about, you know, of of questioning God. Notice Ananias is is not he's not accusing God of wrongdoing. He's not asking for proof like John the Baptist dad Zacharias did and wasn't able to speak for nine months. But he simply just wants to make sure. Well, what's the command? He's afraid, but he's not paralyzed by his fear. So he talks to the Lord about his fear, which is good, which is okay. Lord, you're sending me on a suicide mission. I just want to make sure that that's what you're telling me to do. That's what you want me to do. You want me to go to this man who has done much harm to your saints in Jerusalem and has authority to arrest me and take me back to Jerusalem. So make sure I heard you right. And so, we see the sovereignty of God in salvation that He is able to save those that we think are beyond being saved. Hopelessly wicked, hopelessly evil, but God can save the most unlikely of people. God can save even the chief of sinners. Because God is sovereign in salvation and He's not dependent upon sinners to seek Him because He is the seeking Savior. He has come to seek and to save the lost. I think there's something else that I'd like for us to notice about this particular text that uh, God is sovereign over salvation and God saves people so that they might be set apart to serve Him. He saves unlikely people, but He also saves in order to be served by them. Ananias has a job to do. Ananias has a mission. Ananias has been saved. He's just a certain disciple. He's not an apostle. He's not an elder in the church. He's just just an ordinary guy. And yet, God has saved him because God has a mission for Ananias. He has an act of service that Ananias will perform. An act of service that Ananias will do. Ananias was saved to serve. And Ananias also uses a a new word. 
to describe the believers. We talked a little bit about this last week as we go through the book of Acts. There's a lot of first, and we, we have first things that believers are called. We've talked about the title, the church, the called out ones that are called out of the world and called to assemble together, the church, the ecclesia, the church, the called out ones. We talked about the word disciples last week in this text. The first time followers of Jesus are called disciples or learning believers. The twelve were called disciples in the Gospels, but now they're called the apostles, and all the believers are called disciples, learning believers, sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning from Him, being taught by Him. And then we talked about the followers of the way in verse 9, and, uh, and, and, uh, and followers of Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, the followers of Jesus through the narrow way that leads to life. We talked about that last week. But now we get a new first word, a new name for Christians, for believers, for followers of Jesus. We see it in verse 13, your saints. First time that the word saints is used for Christians, for believers, for followers of Jesus. And what does the word saint mean? Well, it means holy one, sanctified one. And that word really has two meanings. Number one, the sanctified holy ones means set apart. Set apart, why? Set apart to serve God. Set apart for the service of God. When they built the tabernacle in the wilderness, they had certain vessels that were sacred, that were sanctified, that were set apart. Those vessels were to be used only in the tabernacle, only in the worship of God. Set apart for God's service, so therefore they were holy, they were different, they were set apart to be used by God. The priests were set apart to serve God. The nation of Israel was set apart to be God's people, to be God's holy nation. And and so Ananias even uses this term, the saints, those who have been set apart for your service. All believers, saints, sanctified, set apart for God's service. God is sovereign in salvation and He saves us, not just for our benefit, but He saves us to serve. He saves us to serve Him. When we are saved, when we are sanctified, when we are called out of the world, we are called to serve Jesus. Ananias got a job to do. And you know, Ananias' job, (laughs) Ananias kind of shows up in chapter 9, and guess what? He happens after chapter 9. He sort of disappears. The only time his name is mentioned again in the New Testament is in Acts chapter 22 when Paul is sharing his personal testimony and says, this guy named Ananias came to me. So Ananias is saved to serve, and there's only one thing that we're told that he's told he's to do, and he's to go to Straight Street, to go to Judas's house, and to ask for Paul Saul of Tarsus and lay his hands on him that he might see. That's all Ananias. That's all we're told that he does. Now Saul and uh, or Paul in Acts chapter 22 says that he was a devout man. He was well respected, had a good reputation. He tried to obey the law, uh, and he came to him. But that's that's Ananias's job. But you know what? There's 13 books of the New Testament. That every time you read those books, you are being indirectly served by Ananias. Saul will become Paul. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul will write 13 books that are in our New Testament. And so Ananias, hey, go to this street, lay your hands on this guy so that he might see and receive the Holy Spirit. That's your job, Ananias. But you know what? Here, 2,000 years later, we're still benefiting from the ministry of Ananias. Ananias was saved to serve, and he was called to do something that scared him to death. He was called to do something that did not make sense to him. He was called to go and talk to one that he believed could not be saved because he was so evil, so wicked, and Ananias believed that he was being sent on a suicide mission 
that his work in the church would be done, his service to his family would be done, and he'd be arrested, taken to Jerusalem, probably put to death. But Ananias was saved to serve. All saints are saved to serve. Set apart for God's service. And what about Saul? Yeah. Yeah, Saul is saved to serve. And so Ananias gives his objection or, or just clarification. God, I just want to make sure, Jesus, I want to make sure you know where you're sending me, what you're telling me to do. I'm not accusing you of wrongdoing. I'm not being scared. I'm not asking for proof. I just want to make, make sure before I go get locked up. And the Lord is gracious to Ananias. The Lord does not rebuke him for his question or for his uh, talking back. The Lord does not rebuke him for trying to give him additional information. The Lord is so gracious. But he does also tell Ananias that Saul is being saved to serve. He says, go! Because he is a chosen vessel to me. Now this word vessel, this is, a, this is a word that Paul's going to use and he's going to use it beautifully as, in, in, in some of his letters. The word vessel, you know, that's just a, just a cup. Just a clay jar. Just a bottle. And that word vessel speaks of temporariness. Something that's fragile and that of itself is absolutely and completely and totally worthless. A vessel is valuable not for itself, but a vessel is valuable because of what it carries. This water bottle, the only reason I have this water bottle is because it has water in it. And when the water's gone, the bottle is thrown into the trash or recycled. That's no value of its own. And Saul was to be a chosen vessel, an empty vessel of no value of himself, but a temporary earthen vessel that would be valuable only because of what it carried. Verse 15, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to carry my name. Why is Saul being saved? To carry the name of Jesus. Why is anybody saved? To carry the name of Jesus. For the glory of Jesus. For the glory of God. And God is sovereign in salvation. And you know what? The, 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 the most unlikely, the least likely we think somebody to be saved, how, that God gets more glory for saving that person, right? And I thought Saul was the most unlikely person ever to be saved. And how much glory does God get in saving Saul and making Saul the one who would carry his name? Where he's going to carry it? To Gentiles or to the nations? To kings? And we'll see that play out in the book of Acts. We'll see both of these play out in the book of Acts. And the children of Israel. He goes to the synagogues first. We'll see all of this play out in the book of Acts. We'll, we'll go into that in more detail. But here we see that Saul is saved to serve. God is sovereign in salvation. He seeks after sinners. He runs them down. He grabs hold of them. He saves them. He exalts Himself. He humbles them and breaks them. And He saves them. 
in order that they might serve Him, that they might be set apart to His service. When He saves us, we have a job to do. It might be a job kind of like Ananias, go to this one place this one time, do this one thing. Or it might be like, well, it won't be like Saul. <laughs> it might be, Saul's unique, but it might be more like Saul, <laughs> talking to kings and the nations and the children of Israel. Uh, but uh, the fact is, God saves. God is sovereign in salvation, and He saves to serve. He saves us to serve Him, to set us apart Himself to be His servants. Another thing that we see about the sovereignty of God and salvation, another observation we make is that Saul uh, was not just saved to serve, but Saul was saved to suffer. Look at verse 16. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. He's a chosen vessel. He has no value of himself, but he's going to carry my name. And because he carries my name, he will suffer many things. That vessel will ultimately be crushed. Because he is carrying my name. And, and so we see the sovereignty of God. Ananias goes to, to Saul and says, Guess what, Saul? You're going to be saved. And guess what? You're going to be saved to suffer. And that's something that we don't hear a lot today from the pulpits across America. We have pulpits across America where those occupying those pulpits might doubt the sovereignty of God and they might think that they somehow have to manipulate people to come down the aisle and to be saved. And so instead of promising them suffering, what do they promise them? They promise them your best life now. Well, let me tell you, the only way you're going to have your best life now is if you're going to hell. We are saved to suffer and Ananias has confidence in the sovereignty of God and salvation that Saul will not be scared away by being told you're being saved to suffer. He doesn't feel like he's got to clean up the message or water down the message or, or promise health and wealth and prosperity and, and, and your best life now. Ananias is confident in the sovereignty of God and salvation and he can tell Saul you're being saved to suffer and guess what? Saul's going to get saved. He's not going to run away. He's not going to be scared away. Because God is sovereign in salvation and He saves us in order to suffer because suffering is important to our sanctification. And if we have confidence in the sovereignty of God and salvation, we're not afraid of the Gospel. We're not afraid of the message that says, you know what? You come to... Jesus, you're going to declare war on the world and you're going to declare war on Satan. And guess what? The world and Satan are going to fight back. And if you're carrying the name of Jesus, you're going to suffer for His name. If we believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation, we don't have to change that message at all. We believe the seeking Savior is going to run down and grab hold of those that He has chosen that He will save. And He will save them to serve and He will save them to suffer and He will save them through the suffering and they will persevere, they will be preserved, they will endure, they will be overcomers and they will inherit the, the crown of life. And so the next observation that we see, the fifth observation that we see is that in the sovereignty of God is God saves us to suffer and guess what, people get saved anyway. They're not scared away by the message of suffering because of the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign in salvation. He is the seeking Savior. He is sovereign in salvation. He prepares the heart of the messenger. He prepares the heart of the one who's going to receive it. 
He saves sovereignly so that those He saves might serve Him. He saves the most unlikely candidates and He saves them to suffer and then sixth. He's sovereign in salvation. You know what He does? He makes enemies brothers. He makes enemies brothers. So Ananias is convinced. It took longer for the Lord to convince Ananias that Saul could be saved and it took for Saul to be saved. Saul, I mean, Ananias finally goes. Verse 17, he went his way, he entered the house. He laid his hands on him and he said, Brother Saul. Brother Saul. Man, just a few minutes ago, Ananias thought Saul can't be saved. Just a few minutes ago, Ananias was terrified of Saul. Just a few minutes ago, Ananias saw Saul as his enemy. If I go to Saul's, if I go to Judas's house and I present myself to Saul as a follower of Jesus, he's going to buy me, arrest me, take me 150 miles to Jerusalem, and be put on trial for my death. Saul is my enemy. He's here to destroy me. He's here to kill me. He's here to, to uh, men and women take my wife and my kids. Just a few minutes ago, he was terrified of Saul and distrusted him. Thought there was no way God could save him. He walks in, goes down to Straight Street, he knocks on Judas's door, he goes into Saul of Tarsus, he lays hands on him, he says, Brother Saul, his enemy has become his brother because of who they are in Christ. Brother Saul. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you might receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he received his sight at once and he arose and was baptized. So he went and had food. He was strengthened. And Saul spent some days fellowshipping, communing, worshipping with those people he'd come to arrest. God is so sovereign in salvation that He turns those who are our enemies into our brothers. Those that we think there is no way God can save that person. He makes them our brothers in Christ. Reconciling, restoring, and uniting by a common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see the sovereignty of God and salvation in this text? Ananias, look, there's no way. Man, this religious guy that's got it all going on, no way that he will see his need for a Savior. And oh, by the way, he's heard about the Savior and totally rejected Him and he's totally evil and wicked. No way. But God is sovereign in salvation. He can save the most unlikely candidate. He can save the Pharisee of the Pharisees, the most religious of the religious, the best of the good, the most moral person you can imagine. And He can save the chief of sinners. And so what do we do with this? Well, first of all, if you're saved, your salvation might not be anything like Saul's, but guess what? Your salvation is miraculous. It is a work of the sovereign God from beginning to end. Guess what? Because you were a sinner. You are a sinner. Nothing good about you dead in trespasses and sin. You might have had religion, but religion became an obstacle to you actually seeing your need for a Savior perhaps. 
You know, maybe you were that one that had religion and went through religious rituals and ceremonies and by your own flesh were seeking to serve and work and, 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 and be good and obey the law and keep the rules. And you were doing a pretty good job in your flesh, but God in His grace came and showed you your brokenness and how far you fell short of His holy standard. You were religious, but you didn't have a relationship with Him. You never repented of your sins and cried out to Him. If you're saved, your salvation is a miraculous work of a sovereign God from beginning to end. The truth is, you were not seeking God, but He was seeking you. And if you sought Him, it's because He drew you to Himself and put that in your heart. So if you're saved today, your salvation was a miracle of God's grace. Maybe you were on the other end of that spectrum, reckless abandon, breaking all the commandments and enjoying doing it. Wicked and evil, just seared conscience, no moral compass doing. If it feels right, do it. But God in His sovereign grace chased you down, showed Himself to you, gave you new life by the Holy Spirit and granted you the gift of repentance and faith. If you're saved today, your salvation is a miracle. You've done nothing to earn it. You've done nothing to deserve it. You are a sinner. You deserve nothing but an eternity in hell. But God in His great grace sent Jesus to die on the cross to take the penalty that you deserve. And God raised Him from the dead to show that that sacrifice was accepted and the seeking Savior came and ran you down while you were not seeking after Him. Showed Him your glory. Humbled you. Broke you. Granted you the gift of, of, of eternal life, repentance, and faith. And so if you're saved today, you don't have anything to brag about. But you have everything to be thankful about everything to be thankful for because salvation is a miraculous work of sovereign grace of an all-powerful infinitely loving god so if you're saved today you got nothing to brag about but you are humbled in thanksgiving and gratitude for the miraculous work of salvation that the sovereign god has given you as a free gift Another application of this text is uh, if you're saved today, you're saved to serve. You're saved for God's glory alone. You're saved to serve. And it might be something that, that, that you, you, you read in the Scripture and the Holy Spirit impresses you to do something. It might be something that scares you to death. That that service might result in suffering as it did for Saul. But God sovereignly saves people. He sets them apart to serve Him. And He works in the heart of His messengers to prepare them. And He's also working in the hearts of those who will hear. If you're saved, you're saved to serve. To take the name of Jesus to those who need to hear it, to other sinners that need to hear that God will save even the most unlikely prospects. And then third, I think a third application is, are you praying for those? You know, again, have you ever thought someone can't be saved? That person's too religious or doing too good and, 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 and too moral. It, it'll, that, that person will never see their need for a Savior because they're doing good in their flesh. 
Are you praying for that person? Do you believe that the sovereign God can break him or her? That the sovereign God can break that person? Exalt himself and humble them just as he did with the religious Pharisee of the Pharisees, Saul? Saul self-confident, self-assured, confident, convinced he's serving God with all of his might and doing well by the flesh so that he says he's blameless according to the law. But God broke him and showed him his need for a Savior. Are you praying for those religious people that have an appearance of godliness, a form of godliness, but lacking its power, that are serving God in the flesh? Are you praying for the conversion of those modern day Pharisees? Believing that God can save even the most religious people out there? And are you praying? Or the most evil and the most wicked. The people that you look at and say, oh, wow, there's no way God's given that person over. That person's so evil, so wicked, done so many bad things and done it, done it with such joy and, and uh, fulfillment. There's no way God can save that person. Are you, do you believe that God can save the chief of sinners? Are you praying for the conversion of the most wicked, most evil people that you know? I believe that's what... One of the ways that we should apply this text. If we believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation, we believe that we can't do it. They can't do it. Only God can do it. And so what do we do? We ask God to do what only God can do. We pray for the conversion of the lost, for the salvation of sinners. Religious sinners and, and those on the other end of the spectrum. Unreligious sinners. Those who sin religiously. <laughs> Are you praying for the conversion of the least likely person that you know to be saved? Saul was the least likely person that Ananias believed. He is the most unlikely person to be saved. And the seeking, sovereign Savior saved Saul. And he saved him to serve. And he saved him to suffer. And he saved him as an act of his sovereign grace. And if he saved you, he saved you to serve. He saved you to suffer. And he saved you as an act of his sovereign grace. You did not get saved because you're smart, because you sought it out, because you were, you were wise, smarter than other people. If you're saved, you're saved by the sovereign grace of Christ through faith alone. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank You for this text, Lord, and we just thank You for the display of Your sovereignty. How You are exalted and glorified in this text and how we are broken and humbled. And Lord, we give You thanks for Your grace that saved a sinner such as me, a wretch like me. And Lord, we thank You that You're still in the business of saving sinners. And we pray, Lord, that You would work in our hearts, make preparation for us to first pray for the most unlikely converts that we know, and then, Lord, maybe be the one sent to speak, trusting that You have also prepared the heart of the hearer and Your Word will accomplish the purpose for which You sent it. 
Lord, we pray that you find us faithful in service and that we would serve, carry your name, even if we know that will result in our suffering because we know and believe we've been saved to suffer because suffering produces your fruit in us. Thank you for your amazing grace. We give you praise and honor and glory because you are sovereign in salvation. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Right, our closing hymn. Hymn 104. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before nations, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Praise the Lord for His sovereign grace and salvation. Amen.